You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 69. And today we're asking the question, do safety and design processes change the design? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven, and today I'm joined by Russell McMullen. Russell's a research practitioner based in New Zealand, and in each episode of the Safety of Work podcast, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And so today, Russell's going to talk us through his research where he explored specifically safety in design processes, and we're going to explain what those are. And what we wanted to understand, or what what not we, what Russell wanted to understand was to what extent do those safety and design processes actually change the design and make the design safer? So Russell, welcome to the Safety Work Podcast. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be researching safety and design? Oh, thanks very much, David. And um, certainly uh, fantastic to uh, be on the podcast. So how did I come to research safety and design? Well, it, it actually goes back to the Disastercast podcast when I was listening to Drew on those and he talked about the Master of Safety Leadership, which um, I thought sounded like a pretty good idea. Um, you know, my background is 18 years in the Royal New Zealand Air Force as an aeronautical engineer with the later parts of that in systems integration and system safety. Um, I left the Air Force in 2011, joined a consultancy, worked across multiple sectors in safety critical systems. And more recently, or since 2015, I've been employed on a large rail infrastructure project with a heavy focus on the operational safety and the railway licensing and those aspects. Um, so I really wanted to align my uh, master's research with my role and really uh, get to the bottom of this whole idea of safety and design. Um, because if we're going to commit a lot of resources and a lot of time to it, I wanted to understand how we might make it more effective, uh, how we might get better use from our designers and, and the work that they do and avoid any waste where possible. Yeah, I suppose, great. I mean, I, I've been in and around large infrastructure projects, predominantly in the oil and gas industry, but a little time in rail and general construction. And we do increasingly spend a lot of time on these safety and design processes with, I suppose, a lot of hope that we use these processes to uh, create much safer designs from a construction point of view, from an operation point of view. And I suppose having having read ahead of your research findings, I think we're going to have a an interesting discussion today just on how those processes work or, or or maybe don't work as we think they might in organizations. So why was this sort of interesting? I know it aligns with your background, but but going into this, what what are some of the things that you really wanted to understand and 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 what was your specific research question? Yeah, I guess I really wanted to understand is safety and design effective, right? Uh, just fundamentally, you know, we talk about it a lot. There's every organization seems to have a guideline that they suggest people should follow. Um, almost every safety risk practitioner I encounter has written their own guideline that they want to show me. But I really wanted to understand its effectiveness. You know, are we seeing the outcomes of safety and design? And is it very well defined even as a, as a concept? You know, fundamentally, it's just revisiting that whole idea of is what we're doing effective? And I guess that aligns to that, that idea of reality-based safety we, we really just need to make sure that we're building on a solid foundation. Yeah, and I think we would ask a few questions, particularly over, over you know, the last 12 or 18 months with some of the issues that some of the Boeing aircraft, um, the 737 MAX 8 sort of had around sort of software changes and designs and, and, and the risk assessment processes around those. So there's a few things that happen in, 
in safety critical industries that raise questions from time to time about these processes. But there's also then this big expectation, I think, that we have that, uh, you know, there's a lot of specific safety activity that goes on during the design phase of these systems and projects. And so maybe why don't you tell us a little bit about how how do you approach studying something like this? Like you, you want to understand whether safety and design is effective. So what was your research design? How did you do that? Yeah, good question, David. In terms of research method, um, I had a range of options available to me. You know, I could have undertaken interviews, I could have sat in on as many safety and design sessions as possible. Um, but I thought the most practical way to really explore how safety and design is being undertaken is to try and collect up all of those outputs from a safety and design activity. Uh, that, that is whether they are risk registers or altered designs or some other thing that I can use to uh, really objectively explore. And someone could arguably pick up those same artifacts and come to the same set of conclusions, if you like. I then undertook uh, content analysis and thematic analysis on, on that information and um, that I was provided to try and re sort of reach that point of saturation where there was really nothing more to be gained from, from that information. And I went into it with sort of four main questions. So the first question was, what other artifacts that are created in practice? and what are provided to me. How are practitioners using safety and design to influence safety outcomes? Um, and what are the justifications used within safety and design? And I was also looking to see if there was an idea of a thing called risk shuffling, which was suggested in the literature, where people make decisions that moves a risk from one phase in the life cycle, say construction, into operations, where, for instance, you know, they've minimized the safety risk in construction, but inadvertently created an operational risk that exists for the life of the asset or vice versa. I think that's a really good approach, Russell, to do that. We don't always have opportunities in safety science to to get some objective artifacts and safety and design is one of those safety work practices, if you like, that does generate outcome, output documents all the way through to safety cases like we spoke about in uh, episode 68 of the Safety Work podcast. And I think that then you can actually go, okay, how do I interrogate these documents? How do I look to see what's actually uh, been recorded as the outcome of these safety and design processes? So you do these thematic uh, and content analysis processes. And what do you find? What are your what are the key findings that you you came to out of that analysis? Well, I guess the first thing that I had to think about was the limitations around the information that I'd received. Right. So you know, I, I'd approached basically as many people as I could. You know, I've I've got some pretty good at contacts into the broader design industry, and you know, I really ended up with a much smaller set of outputs and artifacts than what I was expecting. I, I was provided ultimately 31 unique safety and design outputs from about 20 different organizations. But surprisingly, almost all of the people that provided me the information knew me personally. And I guess there's this idea of trust that underpins sending me information. Like some people couldn't send me their information because of cons internal concerns that they were sharing uh, things that they shouldn't be sharing or some uh, perception of liability, you know, should that information get out of their control. And so, you know, that significantly limited the study. But in terms of what I found, uh, yeah, I found, well, firstly, um, everybody seems to call these outputs and artifacts different names. There's no consistent naming. You know, I received mostly uh, hazard register type outputs uh, with a couple of reports, uh, one presentation, a couple of meeting records. I was really expecting some things like um, an altered design or 
you know, maybe someone sending me um, some marked up drawings or something like that, but I didn't receive any of those things. People tend to think of safety and design as a safety and design risk register. And that is the, as that as the, as the main output. Yeah. And no, I, I think yeah, the challenges, I can understand the practical, the practical challenges of getting some of that information from organizations, having sort of been inside businesses, the reluctance to share. And like I mentioned before, when we did the episode last week, Drew, Drew talked at length about some of the challenges in getting safety case documents, uh, you know, publicly available so that they can be researched and they can be interrogated by um, interested stakeholders. And it's just something that we seem, seem to hold on closely to, which is a bit of a shame because I think your research, you've made a call at the end of your research for someone to go and actually try to test your conclusions more, more broadly. And I think it would be a fantastic opportunity if you could get a very large set of outputs to to either confirm or challenge some of your findings because some of the findings that, that you did come to with those 31 artifacts were both surprising and maybe a little bit concerning to yeah, for me as yeah. well in terms of those processes. Yeah, so I guess one of the first things I was I was really looking for is how well described are the changes in the design given that the whole idea of safety and design is to minimize or eliminate uh, the safety risk by modifying the design. Right. That's the primary activity of a safety and design process or the, even the, the core idea of safety and design is to modify the design. Um, it has two secondary outputs. One is to communicate risks downstream, the residual risks that you are unable to deal with in the design that you might have identified. And thirdly is an assurance activity to record that fact that you've done something and maybe even who was involved and to what degree you've done it, just to give people in the future some idea of, of, of what you've done. But when I went looking for changes that were claimed in these in these outputs and these artifacts, of 4,000 lines of safety controls that were listed, I found only four changes to the design that were claimed. Yeah, I recall those numbers sort of jumped off the page at me. I think it was something like like you said, 4,000 controls across 3,000 individual hazards or risks and, and four design changes. Now, that rate of four, in, maybe that's the rate, maybe four in 4,000 is actually the rate and, and that's what it is. And maybe those four are really great, impactful design changes. But intuitively, for me, that felt that felt like a low number. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, when I sort of drew out and actually uh, put on my sort of safety practitioner hat and looked at some of the risks that I'd identified and you know, thought up in my own mind what might have been undertaken. I, I came with a, up with some pretty basic ideas like, you know, one was uh, a gate that would swing open. They didn't modify by putting an automatic spring gate closer on it. They, you know, suggested that an administrative control of teaching people to and reminding them to close the gate was more appropriate. You know, little little things like that. So I tend to agree. One of the other things I found is that controls outside of the hierarchy of controls are, are used a lot. Right. So what I mean by that is the general hierarchy of controls is firstly that you engineer out the safety risk, which is what we're essentially looking for, um, before you apply administrative controls such as a process or PPE. More often than not, I found people were claiming controls outside of the hierarchy of controls. So the hierarchy of controls is the general idea that you eliminate the control by modifying the design before applying administrative controls such as training or PPE. But what I found is people would use things completely different that were just not even part of that hierarchy. So they would talk about awarding the job to a competent contractor 
as a claim for having minimized a specific hazard. So there was no modification of the design. There was no discussion on the controls that might be applied either administratively or otherwise. It was uh, some claim around some complete, completely uh, tangential um, matter, you know, such as the design is subject to peer review, somehow claiming that that is making the design safer. Now that that might do that, but it's just not within the hierarchy of controls, which is in theory what safety and design is specifically. Yeah, and I think the um, we see that I see that in risk registers, not necessarily safety and design risk register outputs, but just uh, say an occupational safety risk register, where there'll be specific hazards, and the controls will include things like uh, a pre-start risk assessment, uh, toolbox talk, uh, inspection processes that are these general safety practices that. Yeah, maybe they're there to provide some oversight of all safety risks, but they don't specifically address any individual safety risk. And it surprised me a little bit if with safety and design with so so this finding surprised me a little bit because I would have thought safety and design practitioners are really experienced in concepts of layers of protection and independent protection layers and what an actual effective control is in terms of its functionality, its reliability, its availability, and all of these things that go into uh, risk engineering, it, it surprised me that we were seeing this type of information on safety and design output documents. Yeah, look, I, look, I totally agree. You know, I was I was really expecting a, a lot more positive actions in in terms of uh, modifying the design and, and making those claims within these outputs. Um, and to be fair, I think it could just be in the, the sort of infrastructure sector that we're seeing this, um, and that's why someone really needs to broaden out this study and look at some other other domains because that's not my experience coming from uh, aviation. Yeah, there you go. So, so maybe it's this 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 adopting of these processes from industries into other industries, and the process gets done. Like you said earlier, it could you know safety and design is done to you know maybe as a compliance activity or maybe as an assurance activity. And that sort of draws in that whole thing that we talk about you know, every single episode on the podcast about safety work versus the safety of work. You know, what's as a what's my mindset going into this particular practice in the organisation? Am I going in with the mindset of producing a risk register, or am I going in with the mindset of changing the design to make it safer? Yep, I guess the the main thing I found is this idea of messages to the future, right? So a lot of the artifacts I got were, you know, very complete looking tables and spreadsheets, often with lots of nice colours. They they look complete. There's a lot of text, a lot of green on the right hand side. People using a common red, amber, green type status, and you know when you pick them up, they they look pretty good. And I guess that, you know, falls into that whole assurance argument of if I've got a big stack of paper and it looks pretty good, then it must be all right. But when you actually dig a little bit deeper into the content, I, I found things like what we coined as messages to the future, right? A lot of these messages to the future where it's either a message for someone in a future design stage, some message or instruction to a contractor or to users or maintainers. Sometimes it was a reminder to follow the law or follow rules. Um, sometimes there were just messages to the unknown, like someone would write a statement and you couldn't determine who's the same dad or anything like that. And then there are also hidden messages where, you know, regularly in, in safety risk registers, you'll have a column called existing controls. And there'll be some little action that they're expecting someone to take in the future that's written in that column that no one will probably ever find. No one will ever go looking for it because they, you know, they have no reason to. So, you know, that really uh, gave me this idea that maybe the designers don't have 
a great understanding of the work that's being undertaken because some of the messages are really precise, you know, and then that's quite good, but some of the messages were very vague, yet that vague message was being used as a claim to reduce a safety hazard or risk in some way, yet, you know, when you explore it, it's very difficult to, to, to unpick that and, and really quantify in your mind the effect that that has on, on that risk. Yeah, and I think that that third theme there of message to the future, messages to the future, is something that you know there's a lot that can be wrapped up in that. Like you say, said there as different sub themes, but also in my mind, it's like, well, there's a lot of you mentioned risk shuffling earlier. There's a lot of well, actually, we can resolve this in operations with a procedure. We can resolve this in operations with a procedure, and then you started raising some questions in the paper. Is is you know what sort of organizational pressure is a designer under? Does a designer actually feel that they've got the autonomy to propose or recommend a change or is there a, a norm or a or a climate in the in the infrastructure project that's got we want to we want to prioritize the cost of the of the construction or the capital project over kind of all these extra uh, non-essential but potentially you know important for safety type of design issues like and that would be one thing which we would have got I suppose if you if we could have done interviews as well or something like that, you might've been able to test some of these assumptions that you've actually, you know, alluded to in your paper as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, I certainly recognise that, you know, designers have enormous pressure, right? Um, you know, they're constrained by codes and standards, by budget, by time. I've never heard of a designer saying they've got plenty of time and a ton of budget. So let's, you know, get down and optimise for safety. You know, they're pulled 20 different ways by many people. Yet, you know, when I read through uh, all of the artifacts that I had, I, I really just got a sense that uh, there was a, a defending of the current state and very little ability to to influence the design. So I, you know, really came away with it with a little bit of a feeling that we're putting a lot of effort into this process um, and it's just really not working for us as, as we I guess might expect it to, um, and I've had people over over time saying, "Well, people just aren't doing safety and design properly," and I question what do they mean by properly? Um, you know, there's plenty of different guidelines out there that all suggest many different things, um, but this is hard, right? Um, you know, we expect a fire engineer um, to have their work peer reviewed and you know have certain level of expertise and be signed off by various people, um, and in theory, they're mitigating one small set of risks. And yet we try to undertake safety and design, which is looking at every risk um, in theory that, that the system might encounter in the future in its, in its entire operational life and minimise all of them optimally in the design without affecting project costs or time. Yeah, I think that's a great description of the reality of a practitioner responsible for safety and design in terms of their role. And I mean, the cynical part of me, and I think you allude to this in, in part of your paper where you say, well, if we assume that we've got a set of standards that we're complying with, we've got a functional specification of what we want our system or what we're designing to actually deliver, we've got a schedule, we've got a cost, then a lot of design decisions are made that are balancing all of those things all the time. And when we come along and do the safety and design process, you talk then about defending the position, we really are kind of like doing the safety in design process boxed into a corner with like all of these decisions that have already been made, the pressures that are already already there, the trade-offs that have already been made. And then the designer, you know, maybe it's only in four out of 4,000 uh, opportunities to make a subtle tweak to what's going on. Or maybe the messages of the future is really, really important. Maybe the safety in design role is not actually to change the design. I'm just hypothesizing now. Maybe the 
safety and design process is to actually look at all those decisions and trade-offs that have already been made and broadcast safety information down the line so that you know people have it somewhat early. But maybe, maybe that's the role. Well, I, I did ask myself that very question. And so, you know, I wasn't seeing what I thought I'd see. So I actually, once I'd done the research, had to circle back around through the literature and go, look, have I, have I assumed that? Have I just assumed that safety and design is to modify the design and went back through all of the literature and guidelines. And, and it's pretty clear that uh, the purpose of safety and design as written by all of the major guidelines and books and things is to modify the design to uh, communicate the one the risks that you haven't been able to optimize in the design downstream and to record for assurance purposes. So we're missing at least some part of that, uh, at least the recording of what we have done. It sort of reminds me, you said, as written there through the literature, this might be safety and design as imagined in the literature and safety and design as done in organizations. Yeah, and, and I think, but I think it's fascinating. So you've got these, these 31 artifacts, lots of different companies, different domains, and you sort of, you found these three big broad themes about okay, well, safety and design, at least for the at least in the sample in this study, really didn't do much to change the design. Lots of the controls that were produced, or the risk controls that were produced out of safety and design processes to claim risk reduction, were some sort of general broad statements outside of some of the outside of the hierarchy of controls, and there was a lot of uh, let's say broadcast messaging to the future for other people at some point. Uh, a designer down the track, an operator down the track, or, or or a contractor down the track. So I think they're 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 really useful and interesting themes for people to reflect on with their own safety and design processes. And so stepping on from that, what what would be some advice? I mean, what what have you taken out of this in your practitioner role? But also, what advice would you give to people in organisations, people who do safety and design processes in in real companies on real systems? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I think that's probably the most important one is is moving forward. How do we make the most of this effort that we're putting in uh, to ensure that we're wait, creating waste or waste wasting people's time and, and also getting the benefit that we're seeking? So the first one, I think, is to start from that basis that you spoke about where designers are already boxed in the corner, right? So we already know that something is built to code for instance, if they're building to a code and it's already going to be signed off and it's already going to be peer reviewed. So let's not write that into the register at all. Let's just maybe make an assumptions list that those things are going to be true, that we're going to have a competent contract to build it. We're going to train our operators. Just write all those little things down once. Don't stick it against each hazard or risk. I think the next most important thing is that we are really clear around the operations, situations and uh, things that are going to occur and whether or not we understand them. So if we are designing or undertaking a safety and design activity on a piece of infrastructure, we don't look at the design and critique the design. We try to understand the operations that this thing is going to be used for. And then we try to um, understand the risks that arise from those operations, either historically through work that's been done or what using this idea of foresight of what might occur in the future. And if we start by listing the, the operations before we then list the, the hazards or risks, then we're going to be in a much better place. And then we ask ourselves, what have we done in the design already to help us um, minimise or eliminate these risks? And where we haven't done anything, we say, look, well, we can't think of anything that we've already done to help minimise or eliminate this. And just put an NA or we've considered it just so that it's really clear in the artifact that, that nothing's been done. And then we ask ourselves, what more might we do? Like, how could we modify the design to make it 
safer against this um, hazard or risk? How might we further control that um, with a specific aim of modifying the design? How might we modify the design to make it better? And if we can't, we write we can't. And if we can, we put that idea up and work it through the process and um, you know see if the designer can accommodate it given whatever time and other constraints that they have. And then ultimately, you know, if we want to pass down those hazards or risks that we've been unable to manage downstream, I think we're better off just articulating what the hazard or risk is that we've identified and let those downstream make their own judgment around its probability and its potential consequence. Um, I think we're better off just articulating that we've seen it, articulating it in whatever language we can use to describe it as best we can. Um, but those further downstream are probably better placed to understand the nature of the risk and how it might manifest itself into harm or something. Look, I think that's a really practical and comprehensive process for people to follow. And I like the the way that you purposefully used language when you were describing that to say, like, how might we change the design? And I'd almost see that as like a column header in a in a safety and design output register, you know, some of these things and even have specific columns for a design column and then, a, like you say, a, a, a later phase operational risk. And I also really like the way that you describe just identifying the risk and not necessarily prescribing the magnitude of that risk or the best way of controlling it because other people at other project phases are going to be better placed to make those decisions. And I think Drew said on one of the podcasts we did about risk assessment, one of the good ways to test whether risks, risk assessment is effective is have the conversation about what can we do right now. So even that example you gave about the gate, just letting people know that this gate should stay closed and the design won't automatically keep the gate closed. So whether it's signage or training or something else, then you leave that to someone else, but you at least point out the fact that, hey, this gate should be closed and the design doesn't ensure that it is always closed. So it's almost giving like a hazarded just a list of hazards to hand over to the next phase of the project and let them figure it out. Yeah, in, in practical experience terms, uh, those downstream will, you know, and those in service operations or those undertaking construction really do seem to have a very different idea of what's risky and what isn't compared to the designers and those involved in the safety and design process. Even when you've got the operators in, in the room and the construction people in the room, those on the front line undertaking the work have a very, you know, you try to do as much as you can by modifying the design to make it safer, of course. Um, but anything that you do hand downstream, you know, their, their perception, their risk is going to be quite different. And um, so, Russell, look, you've written up your research. So, so I mean, you, you, you got your master's in safety leadership. This was your thesis paper. You've now written it into a, into a paper that you're just about to submit to a journal. So you're about to go through that publication process yourself. And so our listeners have probably know it could be six or 12 months uh, before people see it. But you might be able to make a preprint available on ResearchGate or something um, at some point in time. You're also just about to embark on for, on on uh, on a PhD. I'm interested in kind of like your decision for going off and doing that, um, and also yeah, what you plan on what you plan on researching. Yeah, that's a that's a really good set of questions, David. So firstly, yeah, of course, I'll, I'll make the paper available. Um, yeah, no no problems there at all. Uh, you know, I think what I've found is is quite interesting and I'd like other people to explore it in their own organizations um, to see if they're seeing the same things in their safety and design output. Yeah, no, the, the master's was great. I really enjoyed the, the research phase um, immensely. Um, I found it really valuable. I, I, strangely, I, I could have written a lot more and, and I think there was a lot more to explore. And I started studying a little bit later in life, you know, I'm in my late 40s now and 
and you know the family are at a sort of point where I can probably take on a little bit more time and you know I think there's a lot more work to be done in this area and so yeah you know I've embarked on on that next stage of the journey what what I really want to look at in the next phases of study are how designers are making these decisions so you know this idea that you know this notional designer is writing these things down and telling us these things and writing these messages to the future I really want to see behind the curtain and understand the rationale for that so you spoke about institutional logics in a previous podcast um, the research that you've undertaken um, basically apply that framework to designers and design organizations and look at how they make decisions around safety so if they are indeed boxed in a corner and safety is really the last thing they think about I, we I think we really need to understand that but if it isn't, that's good too. You know, what are the constraints? What What is the world that they live in that is resulting in these artifacts uh, and outputs that have these things that we're seeing? Because if we can understand that, we can maybe influence that and then get better outcomes. Yeah, I think it's a fascinating research area. It's one that I hadn't had, had too much of a look at until you started researching in this area. But like you say, I think in the opening line of of your paper or the opening line of the executive summary, you make this comment about how safety and design processes give us this opportunity to fix problems easily and cheaply before we construct and operate these these systems. So if we're not taking every advantage we possibly can take to make things yeah, to, to make these things safer for the life of for the life cycle of the system or the asset, then we're probably missing an opportunity in in safety. So it surprised me that probably there wasn't more research in this area, but after sort of 69 episodes of the podcast, the lack of research in an area of safety doesn't really surprise me as much anymore. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yep. So thanks so much for your time today, Russell. I am going to ask you the question. So the question for this episode was, do safety and design processes change the design? And your answer would be? Generally, the answer for that is no. In some very minute number of cases, yes. And I think this is an area that we need to apply a lot more attention. Thanks uh, for joining the Safety of Work podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and found it useful for changing the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or feedback directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 